thank you for the privilege of being in your house of worship on your holy day. We ask, Lord, that as we study this subject, what Jesus said about peace in the Middle East, that your Holy Spirit will be with us to inspire us and to guide our minds so that we might be able to understand the importance of this subject in this last day, these last days of this earth's history. We thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayer, for answering us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1948, the nation of Israel, or the state of Israel, was established in the Middle East. And this has led to tremendous turmoil and to tremendous unrest over there. It seems like a week can't go by without hearing news about things that are happening over there, peace talks that are taking place in Washington, D.C., or in Camp David, or uh, other places as well. In 1967, uh, Israel conquered the Sinai Peninsula, and in 1973, uh, Israel came into dominion of East Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount is found. All of these events in the Middle East have led Christians to wonder whether perhaps prophecy is being fulfilled over there in the Middle East. In fact, you can't turn on your television set on Sunday morning without hearing at least one sermon on Bible prophecy, and most of it deals with events that are taking place over in Israel. Probably you've noticed, if you visited the bookstore recently, that there is a series of novels that have been published recently by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins on, time, on the end times, on the tribulation, on what the world is going to be like after the rapture. Perhaps you've even heard about the new movies that have come out depicting the rapture and what the tribulation is going to be like. Movies such as The Omega Code and Left Behind which uh, have actually been box office hits, even though they haven't been produced by Hollywood like many of the other movies. There is a tremendous interest today in Bible prophecy in the Christian church. And particularly, all of the eyes seem to be looking over to the Middle East, to Israel, as the place where prophecy is going to be fulfilled. So, it behooves us in our study today to discover what the Bible has to tell us about peace in the Middle East, about the role of Israel in Bible prophecy. Now, I believe that you've all received a list of texts this morning as you came in, and uh, we're going to basically follow along that order of lists we're not, uh, of texts. We're not going to read them all but we are going to follow the line of argument as it's found in those texts. If you'll turn with me to Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6, we find here God's original plan for the nation of Israel. Now, God chose Israel for a special purpose. He didn't choose them because they were better than other nations, because they were larger than other nations, God chose them with a specific purpose. He put them in the hub of the Middle East, the center of three continents with one specific purpose. And that was that through their sanctuary service, which described and depicted the plan of salvation, they would share the message of the plan of salvation with the whole world of that day and age. They were to be God's light to the world. They were to explain the sanctuary service, the system of sacrifices, 
They were supposed to talk about the coming seed, the coming Messiah, so that when the Messiah came, the world would be ready to receive him. This plan of God is depicted clearly in Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6. Indeed, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. In other words, I haven't raised you up only for a mission to Israel. He continues saying, I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation even to the ends of the earth. It was God's plan that the whole world be evangelized by Israel by sharing the light about the Messiah. In fact, if you read Exodus 19, 5 and 6, God says that he chose Israel to be a nation of priests. And if you compare this with 1 Peter chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10, God says, quoting that text in Exodus 19, that he chose Israel to call people out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus the Messiah. But as we look at the history of Israel, we discover that they failed miserably in the purpose of their election. Before the Babylonian captivity, which began in the year 605 B.C., the nation of Israel mixed with the nations, and they lost their identity to a great degree. After the Babylonian captivity, which ended in the year 536 B.C., Israel said, okay, we were led captive to Babylon because we mixed with the nations, we lost our identity, so now we are not going to lose our identity. We're going to remain distinct from the nations. And so after the captivity, they separated themselves from the nations. And in this way, by mixing with the nations and by isolating themselves from the nations, the nations did not receive the message about the coming Messiah. Jesus ministered to the Jewish nation for three and a half years. And during practically all of his ministry, it was one rejection after another. And finally Jesus came into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry, which is taking place the Sunday before Jesus goes to the cross. And I want you to notice what Jesus says when he enters the temple. Go with me to Matthew chapter 21, and we'll read verses 12 and 13. This is a critical couple of verses for what we're going to study this morning. Matthew chapter 21 and verses 12 and 13. Remember, this is the last week of the life of Jesus before he goes to the cross. He's entered Jerusalem triumphantly. People have proclaimed him the king. They've thrown palm branches before him. And the children were singing that the Messiah had come. And now Jesus, after the triumphal entry, he comes and he enters the temple. And I want you to notice verse 12. Then Jesus went into the temple of God. What is the temple called? The temple of God. I want you to remember that. It's critical. And drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, and now we come to another critical point, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Whose house? The house of Jesus. So when Jesus goes into the temple, it's called the temple of God, and Jesus says, This is my house. 
But now I want you to notice that immediately after it says that Jesus enters the temple of God and he calls it my house, Jesus begins a series of teachings, most of them inside that temple. One of those teachings, which is not directly in the temple, but it's related because Matthew 21 to 23, most of that takes place within the precincts of the temple of God or the house of Jesus, as he called it. There's one event which is in those chapters which did not directly take place in the temple, and that is the cursing of the fig tree. You find it in Matthew 21 and verse 19. Now let me give you some background. We're not going to read all of the texts because I do want you to get out of here in time for lunch. And lunch is uh, what time? One o'clock? No, just kidding. Now I want to remind you that when John the Baptist came preaching, in Matthew chapter 3 it tells us that John the Baptist said to those who were present, to the Jews, to the Sadducees, to the Pharisees, he said, listen, don't think to say to yourselves, we are Abraham's children. Because God can raise children to Abraham from these stones. And then John the Baptist said, the axe is put to the root of the tree. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is what? Cut down and cast into the fire. Now this is taking place six months before Jesus begins his public ministry. That's very important. John the Baptist started preaching six months before Jesus began his preaching. And John the Baptist is saying, look, Israel is like a tree. If Israel does not produce fruit, it will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It's interesting that in Mark chapter 13, three years have passed since John the Baptist started proclaiming his message. And once again, we meet this tree. Jesus gives a par parable. Go with me to Luke chapter 13. Let's notice this parable of Jesus. 13 and verse 6. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree. Now, it's accepted fact that the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. You can read it, for example, in Hosea chapter 9 and verse 10. It says that the fig tree and the vineyard are symbols or represent Israel. So notice. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking what? Fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look for three years, notice the time, three years. See, John the Baptist has preached six months and up till this point the ministry of Jesus has lasted two and a half years. There's still one year to the ministry of Jesus. So it says in verse 7, Then he said to the keeper of this vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. What did Jesus mean when he said he came looking for fruit on the fig tree? What does the fig tree represent? Israel. Had Israel produced fruit in the three years that had passed since John the Baptist first warned about the fruitless tree? No. Notice what it continues saying. Verse 7, then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Is that what John the Baptist said? If the tree didn't produce fruit? Yes. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But what does the vine dresser say? Or what does the one who takes care of the trees say? By the way, this is a symbol of Jesus. The owner of the vineyard is the father, but the one who cares for the trees is Jesus. Now notice verse 8. But he answered and said to him, Sir, 
let it alone this year also. For how long? One more year. And if you look at the chronology of Luke, you'll discover that this is taking place two and a half years into the ministry of Jesus. How many years still remained of the ministry of Jesus? One year. And so it says in verse 8, but he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and fertilize it. In other words, I'm going to dedicate special attention to it this last year. And then verse 9, and if it bears fruit, well, but if not, after that, you can cut it down. Now, we're left in suspense, aren't we? Does it say whether the uh, fig tree produced fruit or not in this context? No. It simply leaves us in the air. It says, if it produces fruit, fine. If it doesn't, we'll cut it down and throw it into the fire. Now, do you know that the same week when Jesus entered the temple, in fact, it was Tuesday of that week that the fig tree episode took place, once again, we have a story that involves a fig tree. Go with me to Mark chapter 11, and we're reading the parallel passage from Mark 11 because it has some details that the Matthew passage doesn't have, but it's within the same uh, time frame. Notice Mark chapter 11 and verse 12. This, this is at the moment when the year almost has passed of the fig tree of Luke chapter 13. Has the tree produced fruit? Yes or no? Well, let's look and see. Verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, by the way, in Israel, the fig tree, first of all, produces fruit, and then the leaves come out. The leaves announce that it has fruit. That's interesting. And so seeing a, from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. Had the fig tree produced fruit? No. What does Jesus do? Verse 14, in response, Jesus said to it, let no one eat fruit from you, what? Ever again. Now, if the fig tree is a symbol of Israel, how many more chances is Israel going to have, according to this acted parable of Jesus? None. And now I want you to go with me a little bit further ahead in this story. Notice verse 20. Now, in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. What happens when a tree dries up by its roots? Can it be resurrected again? No. So my question is, did the fig tree bear fruit? It did not. The fig tree bore no fruit, and therefore it needed to be what? Cut down and thrown into the fire. Its plan to produce fruit had come to an end. Now let's go to some of the parables that Jesus gave in this time that he spent in the temple. Go with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, and verse 33. 21 and verse 33. We want to see whether prophecy is really going to be fulfilled in Israel or not. For that, we need to understand the role of Israel. If God is finished with Israel, then what is happening in the Middle East has no prophetic significance. Are you understanding what I'm saying? And you'll have to come tonight for a complete picture of what we're starting uh, in our study this morning. Now notice Matthew 21 and verse 33. Once again, Hosea 9 verse 10 says that the vineyard is also a symbol of Israel. 
the fig tree and the vineyard. It says there in verse 33, hear another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard. The vineyard is Israel. Set a hedge around it. That's the law. Dug a wine press and in it built a tower. The tower is the temple. And he leased it to vine dressers. That's the Jewish nation. And went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near, in other words, the time to get fruit from the vineyard, he sent his messengers or his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive what? Fruit. And what did the vine dressers do? The vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Now, the history of Israel has three stages. We don't have time this morning to deal with the three stages, but I'll just tell you what they are. The first stage is from Mount Sinai, where they were incorporated as God's people till the Babylonian captivity. The second stage is from the end of the Babylonian captivity till the time of John the Baptist. And the third stage is the stage when Jesus is present here on earth. Now, this first episode where the vine dressers beat one and kill another and stone another refers to this first stage of Israel's history from Sinai to the Babylonian captivity. But I want you to notice that there's a second stage. Verse 36, again he sent other servants, more than the first. And after the captivity, you have Zechariah, you have Haggai, you have Zerubbabel, you have Joshua the high priest, you have a, a plethora, you have Nehemiah, you have Ezra, many messengers that are sent to the Israelites. So it says he sent more messengers than the first. And what did they do with them? They did likewise with them. And so what does he do finally? Verse 37, then last of all, what does that indicate, last of all? This is it. There's no more after this. It's the last chance. Then last of all, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Who is the son? Jesus. So notice that from Sinai to the Babylonian captivity, he sends messengers, prophets, they kill them. After the captivity, he sends more messengers, they do the same with them. So finally he says, last of all, I'm going to send my son. They will respect my son. Verse 38. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. What kind of fruit is that? Certainly not the fruit that God expected. Verse 39, And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard. Jesus did die outside Jerusalem, incidentally, and killed him. Do you see how the story of the Jewish nation is being told here by Jesus. And then Jesus asks the question in verse 40, Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And of course, they hadn't caught on what Jesus was saying. They said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. In other words, he will take away the kingdom from these and he will give the kingdom to another people. Are you following me or not? And then notice verse 42. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in your eyes. Therefore I say to you, 
the kingdom of God will be taken from you. What does that mean, the kingdom of God will be taken from you? Is the kingdom going to be removed from them? Are they God's kingdom of priests to share the message with the world? No longer. It says the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. Question, what is that nation that would bear the fruits of it? It is not the Jewish nation, it is whom? The Gentiles or the church which will now fulfill the mission of Israel. And then notice verse 44. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. In other words, if you accept Jesus, your heart will be broken. But if you don't, it says, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. And by the way, that is speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now we need to go to chapter 23 where Jesus culminates this presentation in the temple. Matthew chapter 23, and I would like to begin at verse 29. Jesus has rebuked the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and now he culminates his sermon by saying this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous, and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. And at this point, they're planning to kill Jesus. So by planning to kill Jesus, they show that they are partakers of the spirit of their forefathers. It says in verse 31, Therefore you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. And then notice verse 32, Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. What does this mean, fill up the measure of your father's guilt? What do you fill? A cup. Is the cup totally full at this point? Yes, Jesus says, fill up the cup of your father's guilt. In other words, there's no other opportunity. It's full. Verse 33, notice what he calls them, serpents. Why does he call them serpents? That's not a very politically correct term to speak. Because they have become agents of whom? Of Satan in wanting to destroy Jesus. Serpents, brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? And I want you to notice that even after this, Jesus says that he's still going to send them messengers. Even after they destroy the sun, he's going to linger on time just a little bit. Notice verse 34. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets. In other words, I will send you. The, the tense of the verb in the Greek is future. I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. And some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. Who, were the, who was the one who persecuted from city to city? Were many of the disciples also scourged in the synagogues? You can read it in the first five chapters of Acts. So Jesus is saying, listen, the, the cup is full, but I'm still going to give you a chance by sending you preachers and wise men that will present the message. Perhaps you will listen to them. But it doesn't happen. Notice what it says in verse 34. 
Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And then Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. And now I want you to notice a critical small verse. Verse 38. Do you remember what the Bible says about when Jesus entered the temple? Whose temple is it? The temple of God. Jesus says, this is what? My house. But even after what happened with the fig tree, even after what he talked about the vine dressers, even after talking about them as a brood of serpents and saying that the cup was filling up, they still rejected him. And now notice what Jesus says in verse 38. See, your house is left unto you desolate. Whose house? Whose house was it? Theirs. Not God's house. And by the way, do you know what's interesting? When Jesus left the temple and the house was left desolate, the very next event that Jesus talks about is the destruction of Jerusalem. Chapter 24, verses 1 and 2. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. You see, when Israel, when the Jewish nation in Christ's day said, We have no king but Caesar, they were rejecting God as their king. Christ as their king. When they said his blood be upon us and upon our children, they were pronouncing sentence upon themselves. They had withdrawn from the theocracy that God had made with them. And they were rejected as God's chosen and special nation to fulfill the mission of bringing Jesus to the world. By destroying Jesus, they totally eliminated any election that God had for them because the whole purpose of their election was to proclaim Jesus, not to destroy him. Now the question is, did the plan of God then fail? Simply because God rejected the nation of Israel as his instrument to reach the world for the Messiah? Absolutely not. You remember when the Lord Jesus was on the cross of Calvary, his last words were, it is finished. And do you know what happened when Jesus said it is finished? The Bible says that the veil of the temple, the veil that divided the holy from the most holy place, was ripped from bottom to top. Uh, thank you. Some of you are still awake out there. The veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom. What did that indicate? This was being done by whom? By God. And what was God saying? This whole system of the Old Testament is coming to an end. And now things are going to shift from the literal temple in Jerusalem 
to the heavenly temple where Jesus ministers. From the little literal earthly temple in Jerusalem to the Christian church, which is now called to fulfill the mission. Now let me share some real important information with you on this. You see, when the Jewish nation was rejected by Jesus, because they failed to fulfill their mission and they actually destroyed the whole meaning of their religion, Jesus said, now I'm going to transition from literal Israel. They didn't fulfill the plan. There's nothing more I can do with them. So now what I'm going to do, I'm going to take a nucleus of faithful ones from them and through the Christian church, I'm going to fulfill the mission which they were supposed to fulfill. And so now, a new Israel appears. Not a literal Israel, but a spiritual Israel. Go with me to the book of Galatians, chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and let's read verse 29. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 29. I think probably most of us know this verse. It says there, and if you are Christ's, then you are what? Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What does it mean to be Abraham's seed today? Do you have to have Jewish blood flowing through your veins? Do you have to live in Jerusalem? Does your last name have to be Cohen? No. Because according to Jesus, to be a Jew or an Israelite means to have accepted him as the Messiah. Now let me ask you then, where is Israel today? Is Israel over there in the Middle East, God's true Israel? No. God's true Israel is where two or three are gathered together in Christ's name. And where is that? All over the world. So Israel today is not located in a little place in the Middle East. Israel is those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And so Israel today, Jerusalem today, is worldwide. Now allow me to share a few very important points with you. Go with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. Ephesians, chapter 2. You remember that in the old system you had the temple. Does God today have a temple? Oh, he most certainly does. Notice Ephesians, chapter 2, and verse 20. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20. Here the Apostle Paul is speaking about the church. Let's begin at verse 19. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, he's speaking to the Gentiles, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And now notice this. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. What is the new household of God founded on? Is it literal stones? Literal stones? No. What are the foundations of this new temple? People. The apostles and the prophets. What does it continue saying? Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, is the chief's cornerstone just one great big stone like the one that existed in Solomon's temple? Absolutely not. The chief cornerstone is a person. The foundations are persons. Now it continues saying in verse 21, in whom the whole building 
being joined together grows into a what? A holy temple in the Lord. What is the temple today? You have to go to the Middle East and try and encourage them to build the temple on the Temple Mount today? Would that have any prophetic significance? Absolutely not. Because Paul says that since the Jewish nation was rejected as the instrument to take the message of the Messiah to the world, God now has a spiritual temple with a spiritual cornerstone, with spiritual foundations, with spiritual stones being built up on top. So let me ask you, where is the temple today? Wherever the apostles and the prophets and Jesus are the chief, uh, is the chief cornerstone and the foundation stone. Where are the stones of the temple today? There's lots of them gathered here this morning. You're all stones, each a stone built up in the temple. Now let me ask you, in the Old Testament there was a Shekinah that dwelt in the temple, the glory of God. Remember, used to descend and they could see the glory of God in the most holy place. What is the glory of God in the temple today? Ah, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verse 22, In whom you also are being built together for a habitation of God in the what? In the Spirit. Who did Jesus send as his glory into this spiritual temple? He said, I will send you another counselor. So does God have a temple today? Yes, but what kind of temple is it? Is it a literal or a spiritual temple? Is it local or worldwide? It is worldwide. Now, let's notice a few other things here. Do we have a capital city today? Does this kingdom of Christ have a capital city? Is it Jerusalem? Sure it is, but not the earthly one. The Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verses 25 to 29, that Jerusalem, which is above, is the mother of us all. In other words, in prophecy today, we don't look over to that earthly Jerusalem, which has been forsaken by Jesus. Your house has been left unto you desolate. Where is Jesus today? He's in heaven. In what city? In Jerusalem. Do we have our citizenship there? Do you have your citizenship there? We're not there physically yet, but I'll tell you my citizenship is there. It says in Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven from which we expect Jesus. It's kind of like when I travel to South America. I'm going to be going to, to give you an example to Chile at the beginning of the month of November. You know, when I go down there, I'm not in the United States. I'm a citizen here, but I've got my passport down there, and I know I have a perfect right to come back to the United States and enter in because I'm a citizen here. See, I'm physically gone, but I have the right to come in. So right now we're physically on earth, but we have our passport, which is the blood of Jesus, which is Jesus as Savior and Lord. And so he's up there, and someday, because we're citizens, we'll be able to join him up there. So in other words, our eyes should not be focused on the earthly Jerusalem. Our eyes should be focused on the heavenly Jerusalem where Jesus is. In the old system, there were priests. Isn't that correct? Let me ask you, what about the new system? Are there priests? No, there is a high priest, Jesus Christ. In the old system, you had seeds. Each one of those seeds, starting with Genesis 3.15, pointed towards Jesus, the seed. In the Old Testament, you had kings, a succession of kings. But all of those kings pointed to Jesus. 
the king. In the Old Testament you had pastors or shepherds. All of those shepherds pointed to Jesus, the good shepherd. In the Old Testament you had lambs that were sacrificed. All of these pointed to Jesus, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. In the old system you had a covenant. In the new system you have a better covenant because it has better blood. Your sins are truly forgiven. And the law is written in your heart. It's a better covenant with better promises. But they are promises that are accessible to everyone on planet earth. It is not ethnically or geographically limited. Are you understanding what I'm saying? In other words, if prophecy is going to be fulfilled in the last days, is it going to be fulfilled with literal Israel in the Middle East? No. Because we notice that God is finished with them. But does God have an Israel today? Did his plan fail? No. Does he have an Israel? Yes. Does he have a temple? Yes. Does the Spirit live in that temple? Yes. Do we have a high priest? A sacrifice? A covenant? Better promises? Everything that the Old Testament had, the New Testament has better. And it applies to all of God's people everywhere in the world. Now, do you know who the enemy of Israel in the Old Testament was particularly? The enemy par excellence of Israel in the Old Testament? Babylon. Isn't that right? Babylon was the great enemy of Israel. Was it literal Babylon, the enemy of Israel in the Old Testament? Yes. Uh, according to the book of Revelation, what will be the great enemy of God's people in the end time? Babylon. So I guess we need to keep our eyes on Iraq. That's where ancient Babylon was. You know, Saddam Hussein isn't finished. See, because it says if Babylon's going to attack God's people, it's going to be the enemy of God's people at the end time. But listen, if God's people today, if God's Israel today is a spiritual worldwide people, that would mean that Babylon is also a spiritual worldwide power which opposes God's people. Are you understanding in other words, we're not supposed to look to the Middle East for the fulfillment of Babylon as the enemy of God's people. All we have to do is recognize that Babylon is a worldwide system which will oppose God's worldwide Israel. Well, let me ask you this, very sobering. The Apostle Paul says that the Antichrist is going to sit in the temple of God. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Do you know what most Christians uh, think that means? You know what they do? They look where? They look over to the Middle East. They say, well, he sits in the temple of God, doesn't he? And where is the temple? In Jerusalem. So that must mean that the temple is going to be rebuilt. The problem with this interpretation is that it totally ignores the fact that in the New Testament, the temple is spoken of as the church. The Apostle Paul, for example, besides what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, he says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Know ye not that ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You can read 1 Peter chapter 2. The temple is always spoken of as a spiritual temple where Jesus is the chief cornerstone. It's founded on the teachings of the apostles and the prophets. The individual members are the stones that are built up. And the Shekinah glory in the temple is the Holy Spirit. Well, let me ask you then. Where is the Antichrist going to sit? Not in the Jewish temple, but where? In the church. 
because the church is the temple. And the church is worldwide. Which means that the Antichrist is going to sit in some way in the worldwide church. Are you understanding what I'm saying? So while all eyes are focused on the Middle East, and people are looking and saying, let's, let's watch what's happening there. We're going to rebuild the, the temple. And there's going to be a rapture. Everything's going to take place with reference to the Middle East. The true enemy Babylon grows worldwide. The Antichrist sits within the very Christian temple. And people can't see it because they're looking in the wrong place. Are you understanding me? And listen to this, folks, and we're going to amplify this point tonight. It is a sobering fact that the people who claimed to be the people of God at the first coming of Jesus became the Antichrist because they killed Jesus. Are you with me? It got quiet here all of a sudden. The Jewish nation that professed to be the people of God, they became the Antichrist to destroy Jesus. Do you know that Bible prophecy tells us that in the end time, the professed people of God will once again become the Antichrist, but this time they will not try to destroy Jesus, but they will try to destroy the body of Christ, his faithful followers. And this power is seated in the temple now. Not in the Jewish temple, but in the Christian temple. And everybody reveres this power and respects this power and wants to form alliances with this power. And they cannot see that they're forming alliances with a system which is going to take away and restrict religious liberty and ultimately destroy God's faithful followers. The reason why they can't see it is because they're looking for the fulfillment of prophecy in the wrong place. Now, lest anybody should say, Pastor, how is this that you say that uh, at the end of time they're going to persecute and try to destroy the body of Christ. Is that the same as trying to destroy Christ? In principle, yes. Because the church is the body of Christ and Jesus is the head. I've never seen a head walk without a body. Do you remember when Saul of Tarsus was on the way to, on the way to Damascus? He's persecuting the church. And a voice is heard from heaven that says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, wait a minute, Jesus was in heaven. How is this? Why persecutest thou me? Was he persecuting Jesus? Yes and no. Personally? No. But through his followers, through his people. And the voice is heard that says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus said, in that you have done it unto one of these, the least my brethren, you have done it what? Unto me. If you give someone a cup of water in my name, you have done it unto me. So by persecuting the body of Christ at the end, it will be just like persecuting Jesus. I like to talk about the relationship between the shepherd and his sheep. David, of course, is the ideal good shepherd. What would happen when the wolf came? to try and devour one of David's sheep. Who was the wolf really trying to eat? Well, you say the sheep. 
Yeah, but when the, when, when the lion or the bear or the wolf went after one of his sheep, who was that lion or bear really attacking? David. Isn't that right? Because those were his sheep. So in trying to destroy his sheep, the, the bear and the lion were really trying to destroy who? David. See, at the end time, the Bible tells us that the body of Christ will be under the sentence of death. Everybody thinks, however, that after the rapture, you know, uh, the temple will, will be rebuilt over there and the Christians will be watching from heaven. Tonight we're going to deal more with this. And then everything is going to take place in the Middle East and Christians won't even realize that they are fulfilling prophecy until it's too late. You know, the irony of all of this is that the Jews who claimed to be God's people actually became the Antichrist by destroying Jesus and they fulfilled Bible prophecy and they didn't even realize it because they expected the Jesus, the Messiah, to come in a different way. Is that also true of the Christian world? Is the Christian world expecting Jesus to come differently than what the Bible teaches? And as a result, they will be subject to a powerful delusion. Yes. Now let me summarize what we studied this morning very briefly by saying uh, or expressing to you belief that many, of, uh, many Christians have today. They say that God has two mutually separable peoples. He has the Jewish nation, and then he has another people, which is the Christian church. And God has two separate plans, one plan for uh, the Jewish nation and another plan for the Christian church. See, in the Old Testament, he had a plan for Israel. When they rejected Jesus, God suspended his plan for Israel, and now God says, okay, I'll, I'll use the church meanwhile until I can use Israel again at the end of the age. And basically, you read the publications, and they say that there, God has two mutually exclusive and separable people with two different plans. The fact is that God only has had one people throughout the history of the world. Even in the Old Testament, those who were children of faith were the children of God. In the New Testament, those who are children of faith are also children of God. In fact, as we look at the New Testament, we discover time and again that God has only one people. Let me share this information with you. John 10, go with me quickly. John chapter 10 and verse 16. John chapter 10 and verse 16. Here Jesus says, And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Who is he talking about? The Gentiles. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. And there will be two flocks and one shepherd. Who is the shepherd? Jesus. How many flocks? One. Those that are of the fold and those that are not of this fold become what? Become one. God only has one Israel. We read it in Galatians chapter 3. It says, if you are Christ's, you are what? Abraham's seed. So let me ask you, everyone in the Old Testament that looked forward to the coming of the Messiah and accepted Jesus on the basis of the promise, were they true Israel? Yes? How about the people today who accept Jesus as Savior and Lord? Are they true Israel? So how many Israels does God have? Only one Israel. The Israel that received Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Let me ask you, how many bodies does Jesus have? Go with me to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. 
And by the way, we're going to follow up on what we're talking about this morning, this idea that God only has one people, one temple, one Israel tonight, because this is a very important point in the light of what's being said about Bible prophecy. Notice Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, that is Jew and Gentile, and has broken down the middle wall of division between us. Verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both to God into what? One body. Through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Notice also uh, verses 18 and 19. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. How many bodies does Jesus have? One. By the way, how many cities does Jesus have? One. It's called the New Jerusalem. And you know what's interesting? That city reflects the people from all ages. Because the Bible tells us that the foundations of the city have the names of the twelve apostles. But the gates of the city have the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. And so you have the one city with the apostles and the tribes. Twelve and twelve represented in one city. In other words, all of God's redeemed are going to be in one city. You know that there are some authors that even say that, that the church is going to pass eternity in heaven, whereas Israel is going to pass eternity on earth. Because God has two separable plans. Let me ask you, how many wives does Christ have? One woman or two? You see, if he has two separable people, then Christ is a spiritual bigamist. And I, I see you smiling at that, but it would be true. You look at Revelation chapter 12. There it speaks about a woman clothed in the sun with the moon under her feet. It represents the church of God from the Old Testament and from the New Testament. There's only one wife that Jesus has, one church. Romans chapter 11 says that uh, God has only one tree. Represents Christ's true church. It has natural branches, which are the Jews. If they don't believe, they're cut off. And then you have wild olive branches that are grafted into the tree, that same tree, to replace the ones that were cut off. So God doesn't have one tree with natural branches and another tree with wild branches. He has one tree, his true people of all ages. God only has one temple because it has the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. Just one temple. We all have one Father. If we've been born of the water and of the Spirit, we have one Father. No such thing as the people of the Old Testament having one Father and the people of the New Testament having another Father. We both have access through one Spirit, through Jesus, unto the Father. And finally, the redeemed will sing one song. Have you ever wondered why that song is going to be the song of Moses and the Lamb? That means that the ones who sing the song of Moses will also be singing the song of the Lamb. And the ones who are singing the song of the Lamb are also singing what? The song of Moses. Because it's the song of Moses and the Lamb. In other words, the redeemed sing one song. The song of the Old Testament deliverance and the song of the New Testament deliverance. Allow me to go to one last passage in closing. John chapter 1. It'll put everything in a nutshell. John chapter 1. And I want to start reading at verse 43. This is speaking about Nathaniel. Have you ever heard of Nathaniel? He was one of the twelve apostles. 
says there in verse 43, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses wrote in the law and also the prophets, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, we found the Messiah. And Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, notice this, behold, an Israelite indeed. That must mean that there are Israelites not indeed. Are you with me or not? He says, an Israelite indeed. Why is he an Israelite indeed? Continue reading, verse 48. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said, to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So here you have the Israelite indeed sitting under the symbol of Israel, under the fig tree. Verse 49, Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now we know why he was an Israelite indeed. Why? Because he recognized Jesus as the Messiah. And then it says in verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said it to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying is that in order for you to be an Israelite, indeed, you must accept and recognize Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. That is not happening today in the Middle East. And so prophecy is not being fulfilled. The Christian church is setting, setting itself up for one of the greatest deceptions in the history of the world by focusing the eyes on literal, local Israel instead of focusing their eyes on spiritual, worldwide Israel with worldwide enemies Instead of keeping their eyes focused on the new Jerusalem, on Jesus, the Christian world will fulfill prophecy like the Jewish nation fulfilled prophecy. And they will not even realize it until it's too late. May God deliver us from such a delusion. Father in heaven, we've studied this morning about the role of Israel in Bible prophecy. Now we know why there's no peace in the Middle East. It's because, Lord, you have withdrawn your presence. And also, Lord, because we know the devil is mixing things up over there because he wants eyes to be turned over there. We're thankful, Lord, that you have given us a comprehension of Bible prophecy so that we will not be deluded in these last days. I ask, Lord, that you will help us to go to your holy word to study to research these things. They might appear to be intellectual, but Lord, it's much more than just feeding the intellect. We're setting up barriers to resist the great deceptions of Satan in the last days. I ask, Lord, that you will be with everyone gathered here this morning, particularly with those who have heard this message for the first time. I ask that through your Holy Spirit you will speak to their minds and to their hearts. And Lord, that everyone gathered here might be on the right side in the great conflict ahead. I thank you, Lord, for having been with us and for answering my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.